Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Bob Wilson, Associate Professor of Geography at Syracuse University and host of New Books in... Hello, this is Bob Wilson, Associate Professor of Geography at Syracuse University and host of New Books in Geography. Today I'll be speaking to Susan Scholten, author of Mapping the Nation, History and Cartography in 19th Century America. Maps are an important but often overlooked topic by many historians. And this is strange because our everyday lives are saturated with maps. We use map software on our phones to get us from place to place. Maps in the newspaper and online show us the spread of disease, the state of the planet, and conflicts among nations. Professor Scholten is an expert on the history of cartography and American history more generally. Her book is about a particular type of cartography called thematic mapping, and she'll explain what this means a bit later. Her book shows the pivotal role maps played in 19th century American life, from helping Americans to forge a national identity and better understand their past, to showing the pervasiveness of slavery in different parts of the South and the prospect for emancipation. Professor Scholten's previous book is The Geographical Imagination in America, 1880-1950. She also contributes to the New York Times Disunion blog, which posts commentary by historians and others about the 150th anniversary of the Civil War. She also regularly writes on cartography and mapping for the New Republic. For those of you listening to this podcast on their desktop or laptop, I encourage you to visit the Mapping the Nation companion book site, www.mappingthenation.com, which has fabulous high-resolution images of the historic maps she examines in the book, and that some of which we'll be discussing today. So, Susan, thanks for joining me on New Books in Geography. Thanks for having me, Bob. Uh, it's clear from the book and your companion website that if you have a real passion for geography and for maps. So maybe you could tell our audience a little bit about how you became interested in geography and maps, and especially historical maps. Sure. That's actually a, a pretty long-ago history now. When I was a graduate student, uh, one of the things I was interested in is the way Americans were taught to see the world. And geography gradually became the lens that I used to answer that question, how Americans particularly were taught to see the world as their nation became an international power Mm -hmm. in the late 19th through the 20th century. Um, I did a lot of work on the rise of school geography and especially the discipline of geography in universities. And then I began to think to myself as a graduate student, well, could you do the same for a map? Could you say, study the production of atlases and see what they told us, what they told Americans about the world in 1880, in 1910, in 1950. And that really is where my attention began to focus primarily on mass production cartography. I distinctly remember um, the first company I began to study was Rand McNally. Sure. Um, and I vainly believed that I was the first to do this <laughs> and then quickly discovered, as you well know, that there was a burgeoning field in the history of mapping. Um, that became my first book where there are two chapters devoted to maps. And after that was done... In some ways, I thought I was done with maps, but I had sort of been bitten with this love of the imagery 
and the weirdness of old maps. And in the time after the first book was published, I began to accumulate more and more examples of maps that were both familiar and unfamiliar um, to the point that that actually became the centerpiece of my second project. And the maps for for those of you who have the opportunity to find the book or to see the companion site are really are just absolutely marvelous. Um, and some of them are, are look very contemporary in many ways, but some are delightfully strange. And I like that, that there's a, both types of maps in this sort of um, a book. Uh, now, the particular type of mapping that you look at in Mapping the Nation is are, are thematic maps. But I don't think our audience would necessarily all know what a thematic map is. So what is a thematic map and how might it differ from the other sorts of maps that people may know about? Well, it's important to, for me to acknowledge that the term thematic map wouldn't have been a term used in the 19th century. But for me, sure. it's useful in a couple ways. Um, when most people in the 19th century thought about mapping, they conjured up in their head a map that would represent the terrain or that would help them get from point A to point B, a wayfinding aid that would represent the landscape in some way. But in the 19th century, there gradually came to be a different type of map, one that focused not on representing the landscape, but organizing information. Okay. Um, And so I think the key here is that thematic maps try to organize data in some way, and that can be statistical data, environmental data, census data, economic data, um, like you said, the outbreak of disease, um, and uh, they do so so that they're, sorry, in pursuit of maybe a particular argument or to investigate a particular problem. And there's obviously a very fluid line between geographic maps and thematic maps, sure, but it sure. seemed to me that partly what was unique was that the 19th century became this moment where a new type of mapping really exploded. Okay. Can you, you, I mean, you said, you mentioned kind of in passing there that, and you mentioned in the book that, you know, the traditional maps are in some ways more akin to description, but a thematic map is more like an argument. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? I mean, how can a map, I mean, we don't normally associate a map as having an argument, but how can a map have an argument? Well, and this, uh, certainly um, topographic maps can have an argument, Uh one example is the ways that railroad maps uh, were notorious for making it look as though the West were more settled or more inviting or more hospitable to, to emigration and settlement. Sure. Um, so all types of maps, uh, you know, some historians of cartography have famously said all maps are arguments because they select some data and they omit other data. What was interesting to me is that a thematic map from its very inception was designed to pursue a particular question. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean the author or the creator or the agency knew what that outcome would be, right? For instance, to map rainfall patterns doesn't necessarily mean that one is making an argument, but rather that one is trying to investigate what those patterns might look like. And uh, so that seemed to me a kind of innovation in the 19th century. And what was particularly interesting is that it was happening across multiple fields but not with a common set of assumptions, meaning physicians and people in public health were trying to use maps to pursue yellow fever, whereas um, people in the Coast Survey were experimenting with mapping slavery with an entirely different agenda. And those two groups may not have ever crossed paths, but that what was similar is that the way they were both invoking maps for their particular discipline. 
Okay, I see. Uh, we'll go through some of the individual chapters in a little bit, but I, one of the things I'm curious about, why do you think the 19th century, you know, 19th century United States, proved to be such a, um, a fertile place, fertile ground for the emergence of this type of mapping? Yes, and that was true not just in the U.S., but um, even more so, I would think, in Western Europe. Um, the first and foremost reason would be, in the United States, the establishment of a nation in the late 18th century, which created independence, obviously, but no sooner had the Americans declared independence than they were faced with a whole new set of issues about administrating this new nation. So there was simply a demand to know more thoroughly um, the contours of the nation, um, the population and its characteristics, um, to control disease, things like that. But I think more to the point, the 19th century is a time when there is a tremendous amount of information that's being collected. Mm -hmm. Um, You know this, obviously, how much environmental information is being observed and tabulated and collected. Uh, Similarly, the census, by the middle of the 19th century, the census has been in place for 60 years or so and has created a lot of data. So there's a lot of information to be mapped right, to be harvested. And then the backdrop of this, I would say, um, is crucial, and that is the advent of inexpensive print techniques, primarily lithography um, and wax after that. Um, I don't want to be deterministic about this, but is there something about also kind of the size of the country? I mean, mean, the the U.S. is expanding by leaps and bounds in the 19th century. Um, And that would seem in part, given all the other things that you mentioned about, that another component of this is just the sheer size of trying to to manage uh, – a country that's so vast. Yeah, like you said, it's vast. It's even vast at the outset, but Mm -hmm. then very quickly in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, it grows all the way to the Pacific. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing that I've been interested in is uh, one of the chapters um, showcases some of the census maps that were created after the Civil War, and they give the illusion that there is a kind of center of control going on, that that the census is actually this... um, omnipotent and omniscient agency, when in fact, nothing could be further from the truth. They were a vastly experimental agency, underfunded, constantly begging for um, for resources. And the maps suggest something much more, sort of, like you said, complete and determined, right? Well, they uh, suggest it has more power, that the agency has more power than it really actually does. Which maps often do, don't sure. they? Not just yeah. thematic maps, but all maps have a way of... Uh, of creating a sense of authority once a line is drawn on a map. And that's always been fascinating to me, Yeah, um, yeah. the authority that maps carry. Well, a little bit later on, I want to get back to this issue of kind of maps um, as a tool of governance, among other things uh, that you talk about in in some of the later chapters of your book. But the early chapters, like in the the first kind of main part, uh, you look at how maps are used to help Americans better understand their past and one of the interesting figures that you, you bring up, and I must confess it was somebody, uh, it was a woman that I had never heard of before, Emma Willard, who is an early 19th century, early education pioneer, who, among other things, stressed the importance of studying history and geography together. So can you tell us a little bit about her and some of the marvelous and I would say even bizarre thematic maps? I don't even know, in some ways it's hard to even call some of these maps, but thematic spatial images that that she created. So tell us a little bit more about her and what she did. Sure. And uh, Emma Willard was certainly um, an unusual character, supremely self-confident, I would say. And that's the first thing to know (laughs) about her. Um, And at a moment when women were confined to female academies and female seminaries, she took that um, 
that education that she did get and really ran with it. Um, she was a product of the Northeast um, and well-educated uh, and from a very young age began to teach uh, and even as a teenager was preceptress, as the term was called, of her own school, very small school, um, and transferred around to other schools and pretty soon had a fairly significant following of families who would send their daughters to, uh, to be educated by her. Like you said, she felt very strongly that history and geography ought to be studied together. And in part, what set her apart and got her on my radar was her insistence that the visual precedes the verbal, yeah. that visual learning. And now I think there's a kind of return to that in today's yes, yes. world of education. But the emphasis that graphic knowledge um, was a way to imprint something on someone's mind. Now, keep in mind, her goal, like everybody's goal in the early 19th century, was to memorize. Yes. Right? That's what it meant to be educated. But still, she was unique in that she broke from contemporaries and said, uh, these geography textbooks have no images. They have no maps. Mm -hmm. So not only did she begin to draw maps in her atlases with her collaborators, but like you said, she began to do something really strange. And what she called them were maps of time. Yes. And all she really meant was to use any kind of imagery one could in order to imprint knowledge on a child's brain. So she would put the put uh, images, um, geographic images into architectural symbols or use a tree to map time. C try to kind of um, tap curiosity, I would say, and tap that that visual imagination in order to get students to remember and then be able to communicate themselves. And in that respect, in some ways, she was quite successful. She was one of the most successful textbook authors in the 19th century, but not a lot of those weird images that you're invoking necessarily caught on. Oh, okay. So, um, and I think that in itself is sort of interesting, um, her experimentation. Some of it was quite successful. Her, her historical atlas was very successful. Her mm -hmm. textbooks, some of the other things are so strange that they're hard for us to sort of tap into. Well, it seems she should be innovative in some ways today because there's a desire to, to, I don't know, to use spatial images in new ways, particularly um, a lot of historians are experimenting with spatial history, and they're not just creating maps, they're creating different types of visualizations that hard. they have some sort of spatial component, but they're supposed to show historical change over time, and uh, I was just struck by just Emma Willett seemed very much ahead of her time in that way uh, by creating these, these, unique, um, these unique images and maps. Yeah, and there's something interesting about this. Lately, I've been very drawn to uh, a whole collection of images that I've found in lots of different archives. What they are are maps drawn by young girls who are in these female academies hmm. from about 1800 to about 1835 or 40. Thereafter, female academies begin to decline, and there's the rise of co-educational -edu co education so that girls aren't just confined to those women's schools. But in those girls' schools, what they really emphasized was what was called map study. And so you, we have the legacy of that, which are hundreds and hundreds of hand-drawn or painted or embroidered or sewn maps of the United States. And I believe that Willard herself grew up in that, in that educational environment that was saturated with maps. And then that gave her the foundation to begin to experiment, like you said, with um, I mean, she's sort of the pioneer in infographics, if you would. Yes, yeah. It may not have been successful infographics, <laughs> but, but, but that was her whole point, is that if you, if you put the information in a visual form, right, 
it will stick and it will raise new questions. Yeah, she's absolutely fascinating figure. And again, I encourage people to go to your companion website and look at some of those uh, images. In this first part of the book, you're looking at, again, the way maps are used in various ways in the 19th century to help Americans better understand their past. You also talk about uh, the, the um, actually finding ways to archive maps, seeing maps as something that's worthy of being archived and collected and, um, and to, to studied carefully. But it seems in some ways the culmination of using thematic maps in their various guises to help us understand the past, it kind of culminates in this incredible uh, historical atlas, the historical atlas of the United States that's um, um, published in 1932. Mm -hmm. And I don't even know if all of our listeners, uh, particularly those who are less familiar with geography, have really looked at historical atlases. So what is a historical atlas and why was this atlas in 1932 really so innovative and groundbreaking? Well, I guess the easiest way to describe a historical atlas is that the focus is on historical development mm -hmm. rather than strictly contemporary representations. Yes. And they take many forms. They, they certainly aren't new to the 19th century in that you can find examples in the 18th century of maps that look at Bible lands or, you know, the sacred history um, or that look at a, uh, European nations over time, the changing borders. What I think is unique in the 19th century is that in France, in Britain, in the United States, there's an attempt to organize a historical atlas around the nation. Uh, and in the United States, it's very clear that independence and the advent of the new nation in the early 19th century demanded this sense of identity, and you can see it in schools. And that's what Willard was responding to. She creates the first American historical atlas. Mm -hmm. And the genre picks up. It really becomes popular after the Civil War with more formal education systems in the United States. And like you said, the real culmination comes in the early 20th century. It starts, the idea starts right at the turn of the century when the head of the American Historical Association, John Jameson, proposes that there be an atlas that looks at history in the same way that the census atlases looked at the census. So just sort of applying the same principles, uh, exhaustive, um, permanent, a foundation for scholarship. Now, he proposes that in about 1900. It takes 30 years yeah. for that to come to fruition. And part of that is funding. It's first funded by the Carnegie Corporation and then others. Part of it is that they um, have trouble when people sign on and, and can't continue. So there are other reasons. But part of it is that the sheer amount of research that went into that atlas um, demanded several decades of work. When it finally is published in 1932, um, it's published to great acclaim, particularly within among historians and geographers. Um, but it's never really uh, superseded. Yeah, that was and, another question I was going to get to. Why, well, why do you think that? Um, it, I mean, it's a, it's incredible. I mean, we're 80 years almost beyond 80 years exactly beyond it, but it has not been. Um, superseded. And so why do you think that is? I don't have a good answer for this. One possibility is that uh, it was written at a time when the communities around geography and history were fairly small and tight. That is to say, John Wright was in contact with Frederick Jackson Turner, who was also in contact with Jameson um, and Pollan, so that these guys knew one another and, and could conceivably make sense of these fields. Yes. Um, it might be that academia 
the university grew and exploded and, and disciplines exploded so much that such an enterprise might have been too daunting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also wonder, and this is maybe a question for you, <laughs> yes. whether, it had, whether it had something to do with the lack of attention among historians to geographical questions. Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not certain that that's true, but I have been interested with this second book with how many geographers and historians have, have celebrated the possible return, like you yes. said, of an attention to space and geography. So perhaps the 20th century sort of moved away from that. Well, I don't know, I, and I'd be interested to hear your, your comment on this, that it seems to be one of the things is just the, the amount of both money that is needed to undertake a project like this, they tend to take a long time. So how do you have that? The funding and an institutional support to, to pull this off, or are you going to get this money from the government or, or private... Um, you know, private philanthropic organizations. Um, so I think that might be might be part of it. I mean, now it seems that part of the the willingness and ability to maybe create new historical atlases, we owe that partly to the digital revolution that we're living with. Would you Would you agree with that? That that's one of the reasons we're seeing this profusion of uh, of um, you know spatial history and again using maps, thematic maps, and, and spatial visualizations. Hard to even come up with a word to even explain some of the the things that historians and geographers are beginning to develop. That's right. And there's sort of a happy ending to the Pollen and Wright historical atlas, which is that at the University of Richmond in their digital scholarship lab, I hope I have that right, (laughs) Uh, but um, Rob Nelson and Ed Ayers have, uh, I think through a grant with the Mellon Foundation, taken the 1932 atlas and digitized it. Yes. And then built upon it. So they've not just turned it into a digital image by scanning it, right, mm-hmm. or digital work, but they've also taken the data and tried to do more with it and to make it a living document and then in many ways to update it. Um, it's an incredibly ambitious project and one that I suspect is going to, like you alluded to earlier, is quite demanding in terms of upkeep, right, and yes. um, keeping something like that current. Um, but it was interesting that the guys at that lab recognized what an extraordinary document that was, right? And and chose to chose this to be the time that that would not just be given new life, but that the concept behind it, right, that it, it is now time for a new historical atlas of the United States. And I would recommend everybody who is is listening to this, if you have an interest in these historic maps, both an opportunity to see this atlas in the digital form. But also to see some of the things that, Susan, that you're mentioning about the ways that in, maybe not improved upon is the best way, but the way that they've altered it and in, 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 in used the digital medium in very creative ways. So if you just use your search engine to use, look at University of Richmond Digital Scholarship Lab, or, or if you poke around for that, you should be able to, to find it. One person that you bring up in the book is the great 19th century naturalist Alexander von Humboldt, who you you argue in part was part of the intellectual inspiration for this uh, shift. Um, some people who are listening to this might know who Humboldt is, but I think many people may not, um, who was so famous in the 19th century, but in some ways has been forgotten by many people today. So who was Alexander von Humboldt, and what sort of cartographic innovations did he develop that were really taken up by many different sorts of people in the 19th century? And Humboldt was a, a terrific um, source of... Uh research and innovation and inspiration for, for me as well. Um, he's a very well-educated uh, 19th century 
naturalist, I should actually say late 18th and early 19th century. Yes. And the reason he's relevant for us is in part because he makes an epic trip to uh, the Western Hemisphere, spending most of his time in South America. Um, the apex of that is his climb of Chimborazo. Um, and what he's trying to do on that long trip is to collect as much information about the natural world as possible. Everything from temperature at different altitudes, the behavior of the seasons, where different animals live, uh, and especially plant species. So it was, it's an epic collection um, sort of trip. Uh, he swings through the United States at the end of his trip, uh, stopping off in Philadelphia, um, visits with Jefferson, and then um, spends a great deal of the next several, a great, um, several years after that, tries to harvest all that data. Um, and what he's after is some grand theory about how the natural world operates. Yes. And he never does come up with that grand theory. But what's interesting is he's trying to look for patterns, not just in the natural world, but also the relationship between the human and natural worlds, right? What is the relationship between climate and life? Um, uh, how does the natural world operate in its innermost detail and also in its grandest form? And in part, he's inspired by his um, belief that this is created by a divine entity. Mm -hmm. um, but part it's his openness and his breadth, I think, that give him such um, a wide appeal. He corresponds with hundreds of people on both sides of the mm -hmm. Atlantic. And for our purposes, for the book, what was inspiring to me was the way he tried to reconfigure the very meaning of a map. So, for instance, he's one of the first people to use the technique of a cross-section sure. to try to think about <clears throat> what grows at different altitudes. Um, He's also one of the first people to try to think about the relationship between geography and weather or climate. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that absolutely inspired Americans to think about, uh, for instance, uh, the single line to represent average temperature, what's known as an isoline or an isotherm. I'm not sure what geographers yeah. call it today. <laughs> yeah. um, for me, what's interesting is that about a year ago, I came across a weather chart that predated – Humboldt by about 15 years Interesting. Um, by a guy in upstate New York, Simeon DeWitt, showing that these ideas were sort of in the air. DeWitt's chart didn't catch on the way Humboldt absolutely became the standard for the next half century. Um, but it's interesting that these ideas on both sides of the Atlantic were crucial because they're trying to figure out what can grow where. You know, how does the new nation survive? What does agriculture look like? What's the relationship between temperature at the coast and temperature several miles inland? Um, and they turn to graphic knowledge to make sense of that information. And you use, this is something that's not in the book, but you do uh, talk about in, I think, both on your blog and then also in um, an essay for The New Republic about how this trying to map climatological patterns and, and qualities are used by John Wesley Powell in creating this famous map of the western United States. And can you talk a little bit about this map that he creates and how he wanted um, particularly like the federal government to, to take the ideas in this map seriously and rethink the way they were settling or dividing up the west? Yeah, and that's a story that involves really the post-Civil War rush to settle the West. Uh, in the middle of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln signs the Homestead Act, as well as several other acts that 
will facilitate Western development. And some of those were quite profitable, um, particularly to the railroads, but they didn't always make sense in terms of the land. I live way out here in Denver where I can tell you (laughs) it really is a natural desert. Um, That's not an exaggeration. Um, And so to settle the West with homesteads of 160 acres or even 320 um, doesn't really make sense in the way that it makes sense where you live, east of the Mississippi, where rainfall and rivers are plentiful. What Powell did in the late 1880s was to not just extensively study um, the drought conditions of the American West, but he tried to convince Congress, and he uses a map to do it, that far more logical than the grid in the West is to organize settlement and political organization around watersheds uh, and catchment areas. Uh, And the map that he creates as a result is spectacular, and he actually takes it before Congress to try to convince them to rethink this headlong rush into the West um, as quickly as possible. Uh, He fails. Uh, Powell failed in many of his his calls to emphasize a more structured and planned settlement, um, more heavily leaning on on irrigation than relying on um, the luck of of, uh, precipitation. Um, but we have the map as a result, which I think for my students and for people I come into contact with in the West is a great reminder that the West we have isn't necessarily the only one that might have been created. Yeah. I think, um, though I live in upstate New York, I spent much of my life living in the Western United States. And often, John, was they pile on this map is often held up as kind of one of the great what-ifs in Western American history, kind of the road that was not taken, but also seen as that there are ideas here in ways that maybe we can construct our society in different ways that are more in line with what we might call today like ecological realities or the, the reality of aridity uh, in the West. Elsewhere in your book, I mean, you, you, that is not something you talk about in the book, but it's, it's, it's applying some of these same sorts of principles that Alexander von Humboldt uh, set forth. And you do talk about the way that, I guess, physicians, uh, interested people, governments were able to use thematic maps to better understand terrible epidemics, particularly cholera and yellow fever that really took a terrible toll in American um, cities. So to better understand how they spread, and I encourage readers to to look at that. But I want to move on uh, to make sure that we have time for this to really one of my favorite parts of the book, where uh, a chapter that looks at slavery and cartography. And in particular, you talk about a couple of maps created by the U.S. Coast Survey showing the population density of slaves. One of these maps shows it just in Virginia, and the other shows it for the South as a whole created around 1860 or the early 1860s. So maybe you tell us a little bit about why these maps were so uh, innovative and so important at the time. Yeah, and that's one of my favorite stories uh, of the whole book and really feel so fortunate to have um, given new life to a map that had been relatively forgotten. Um, Mapping slavery certainly didn't begin with the Civil War, Um, as long as there was an active abolitionist movement, or I should say, more importantly, an anti-slavery movement in the Republican Party, there were maps, particularly campaign maps, that divided free from slave as a way to point out the threat of slavery, not just in the South, but more importantly and consequentially in the Far West, in areas that had yet to be decided. And those really circulate very, very heavily in the 1840s after the Mexican War, and more importantly in the 1850s. 
So it's not as though Americans didn't know the geography of slavery, but the understanding in their mind, I think, was a fair bifurcation between free and slave, north and south. What changes in 1861 is that the Coast Survey experiments with a new type of representation for the first time using shading to represent census data. So if I can just back up a second, the Coast Survey, as its name suggests, was responsible for mapping the coasts and the inland waterways of the United States. It was the most important scientific agency of the federal government prior to the Civil War and had an enormous map-making arm. But with the threat of war and a military outbreak, the head of the Coast Survey brought all his surveyors back from the West Coast, where they were busy mapping California after its integration into the Union. And what you see is them furiously focusing on a possible um, military conflict, so mapping the coastline, for instance. And that made it seem even stranger to me that they would dedicate time in 1861 to playing with different techniques of representation to map slavery. So not only is it the first map of census data in the United States, it is also the first map of slavery based on census data. And it seems interesting that the first census map is actually a slavery map. Yes. Um, and it, the first one, like you said, is of uh, Virginia. It comes out in June of 61, right at the height of the battle over Virginia and the desire to convince Western Virginians to remain loyal to the Union, mm-hmm. um, which they do when they ultimately form uh, the state of West Virginia. And then a few months later, the one that people are more familiar with, the September map of all slave states, um, is published and becomes an enormously important map, not just for the public, but it begins to circulate in the cabinet as well. And I try to tell that story in that chapter. Yeah, and one of the amazing parts of that chapter as well is you show and find some really good you know, um, evidence to substantiate this is that this is a map that President Lincoln was really um, – enamored with and spent a lot of time poring over. And so why do you think this was this is a map that was so important, that seems that it was so important for Lincoln? Yeah, and it's even so, um, such a stroke of luck that I, I know that. And that has to do with the fact that a few years ago I was teaching uh, a seminar on Lincoln. Um, and I wanted to show students examples of Lincoln in popular culture um, from the 19th through the 20th century, everything, high culture, popular culture, um, which is not hard to do because he's ubiquitous. He's an mm-hmm. <laughs> but one of the images I wanted to show them was the famous uh, painting that hangs in the Senate by Francis Bicknell Carpenter, which captures, and it's very familiar to us, captures the moment that Lincoln reveals his intent to issue an Emancipation Proclamation. Mm-hmm. So it's capturing a moment in the summer of 1862. And in the corner of that painting, I looked at that painting hundreds of times over the years, But after studying the slave map, I immediately realized that in the lower right corner (laughs) of that painting, there's the map. And I wouldn't have noticed that otherwise. So what I did is I actually ran over to the library here at DU (laughs) (laughs) and went and got the memoir of the painter of his time living in the White House. Because um, he painted that while living in the White House in 1864. And lo and behold, he devotes several pages – to that map because he as an artist was blown away by it. Um, He said this, you know, represents in shades of light and dark uh, data information. 
Um, and just as he had noticed it, the reason it's in the painting is because the painter noticed Lincoln paying attention to it. And because Lincoln had paid such close attention to the map, he decided to put it in the painting. Now, your question was, why was it so important to Lincoln? And I've really, really struggled with this. I think first and foremost, it showed him a class of information that not any other map did. So while he had far more specific and detailed and nuanced maps of the topography, he had hundreds of maps at his disposal by the Corps, by the Coast Survey, by other agencies. Only this map showed him something different, which was what's the relationship between slavery and the strength of the rebellion or secession sentiment. Mm -hmm. So that map, and I think that's the reason it caught on at the time, and it continues to catch on with us today because we know how to read a map like that. We're so immersed in that kind of thing, is that it shows us and it opens up new questions, right? What does it mean that Missouri is almost devoid of slaves, right? Mm -hmm. What does it mean that Georgia has areas very devoted to slavery, but other areas where it's completely absent? Mm -hmm. So it, 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 it continually opens up new questions, and I think for Lincoln gave him uh, a lens through which to think about the war and perhaps even misled him. Some people have suggested to me, and I think they're probably right, that Lincoln held on to the hope that there were um, decidedly loyal elements in the South much longer than he should have. While they were some of those elements, particularly in eastern Tennessee, um, he looks at a map like that of slavery and sees how varied it is, and that might lead him to conclude that perhaps the rebellion is weaker than it is, when in fact we know the rebellion lasted four years. Yes, right? absolutely. absolutely. Um, and it's a great example for your own work and book showing how of, of the power of this type of uh, approach to cartography that it's ending up in these really uh, vital maps that are making their way all the way up and being poured over by the president mm-hmm. of the United States for, for hours at a time and informing the way um, as again, you skillfully show informing the way that he understands the war um, and Southern secession and things like that. It's just marvelous. And again, for the listeners, there's there's excellent um, you know high quality scans on your website of this that you can actually zoom into particular uh, parts. And I, I spent a lot of time looking over that map in particular. So I encourage people to to go on your site and do that. Now, after the Civil War. These sorts of maps are taking even even more important role, it seems, in, in governance of the nation. And you show by particularly like the 1870s and whatnot how cartographers were taking this voluminous amount of data from the U.S. Census. I mean, they were doing this in the 1850s and 1860s. But certainly in the 1870s, they were doing this in a major way. And you focus on one man, Francis Walker, and his role in creating uh, the statistical atlas, or at least overseeing the creation of the statistical atlas in 1874. So, why was that? Uh, why was that atlas important? And what do you think Francis Walker and his team were trying to do by creating that atlas? That's a good question, and that's been. Um, uh, I still um, pour over that atlas and and think about Walker quite a lot because he's such a fascinating figure. Um, like many of the men in the late 19th century, he was in Washington, D.C. at a very um, exciting moment when the nation was moving headlong into the Industrial Revolution, uh, when the federal bureaucracy was beginning to grow, although I don't think we would even recognize it um, given how small it was uh, relative to today. 
Walker was a hero of the Civil War, but he really did have no idea what to do with himself after the war. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he cast it about a bit. And he finds himself in the census office uh, working for census reform with Congressman Garfield. And he finds that he really does have a knack for census data. He's interested in it. And what he thinks is important is both to professionalize the census, make it permanent instead of a renewable office. It becomes a bureau under his command. But also, he wants to convince Congress about how important it would be to turn that data into visual form, both to have a greater sense of what the country is like, but also to understand the population. And so people have read Walker in different ways. Some people see him as a kind of prototype for the 20th century bureaucrat. Other people see him a little more nefariously about control. What is certainly true is he was anti-immigration. He was very concerned with the amount of immigration to this country. Um, And more to the point, not just anti-immigration, but Mm anti-urbanization. He felt like cities were really sapping the strength of the country. And that animated some of his work where he tries to map the distribution of the population to see if problems or resources are concentrated in certain areas. And what's interesting to me is the data doesn't always bear that out. So, for instance, he's mapping the population in certain ways. He's also mapping disease, literacy, but he's doing so not because he knows the answer, but because he thinks if he maps the data, he will actually be able to ask other questions. In other words, he's trying to think about these maps as social science. Yes. Um, And even though he had a personal agenda, what's interesting to me is that the maps don't always bear that out. Mm -hmm. For instance, it's not necessarily the case that disease was concentrated only in urban areas or fertility problems or things like that. But he thought the key was to show the data visually, particularly, as you saw in the chapter, to lay the groundwork of the distribution of the population and then to lay over that another class of data which I tried to make the case, and you're a geographer, so you can tell me if this holds water, but that really is the intellectual foundation for GIS, right? I would would agree with that, absolutely. Yeah, whereas the people that I look at prior to that are certainly using maps to analyze data, but generally one class of information. It seems that Walker's really trying to move to the next step, um, and his maps, his atlas, really does uh, command all kinds of attention awards um, in the late 19th century and becomes the foundation for, for later ones. We talked earlier how these types of thematic maps are, in essence, types of arguments, but also something that you stress throughout the book is how these the power of these maps, particularly when we get to the stage of something like uh, the Statistical Atlas in 1874, is that they raise questions. Is that they're, they're, They raise questions that you wouldn't have probably posed otherwise if you hadn't represent the data in that way. Uh, Maybe you talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, and it was interesting to me. I tried to read some contemporary reviews of the 74 Atlas and then the one following it in 1883. And I'll never forget one magazine reviewed it very positively. But the reviewer asked some questions that reminded me of contemporary issues such as, why is there a Republican stronghold in Alabama? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Which is not a question we ask very often. (laughs) No, it's not a question anymore. About Alabama. At the time, of course, um, it would have been very difficult to be a Republican in the Reconstruction period. Yeah, absolutely. um, The party of Lincoln. Um, And uh, it it occurred to me that, that these maps gave people the opportunity to ask things that, like you said, might not otherwise be apparent. 
so that the map leads to questions rather than foreclosing them. And one thing that people have often asked me when I look at these census maps, they will take issue with the data because, of course, the census today, as in the 19th century, is notoriously flawed, right? How do we know we're getting an accurate count of how do you know someone's ethnic identity, et cetera? And it is true that the data is flawed. But to me, that question is slightly beside the point. The key here is that in the 19th century, lots of different kinds of people were turning to maps to raise and answer questions in a way that they hadn't before. And that, to me, is absolutely fascinating. Um, Once I read your book and thought a little bit more deeply about thematic maps, I just started noticing them everywhere. Um, Mm -hmm. I see them online, uh, in newspapers. Uh, They're just really all over the place. So why do you think these maps have become so common now? I mean, obviously, we're using them more often, creating them digitally, displaying them digitally. But this sort of way of using maps that you see um, primarily has its roots in the 19th century, why do you think they've become so common now, ubiquitous in many ways? Well, I think there's a perception, and perhaps uh, from your perspective it's mistaken, Mm -hmm. that geography is known. That is to say absolute geography, right? Mm -hmm. That, um, and there was certainly that sense in the middle of the 19th century that the ends of the earth had been, had been discovered. And I realize all the problems that a statement like that carries, but part of the appeal back then, and perhaps now as well, is that there was another dimension to be discovered. And that was the realm of information and distribution. And key here is patterns, And perhaps with the resurgence of thematic mapping today, particularly with the web, there there might have has something to do with um, the ubiquity of information, Mm -hmm. the avalanche of data that we find ourselves with, that in the 19th century they were facing the same thing, reams and reams of data, but who could make sense of such a thing unless it's put in a certain form? Sure. How can you find patterns? Where do you see distribution? And it seems today we're even more in that situation where there is – endless amounts of information, the key is how to make sense of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other part, perhaps, is there seems to be a what people call a golden age of infographics today. Um, yes. The resurgence of interest in design, and again, with the web. Uh, there are even websites where you can create, not just thematic maps, but create uh, graphic visualizations. Yes. Um, and uh, it seems to be a kind of moment here, the interest in design and the interest in big data and finding patterns in big data. But I don't know, perhaps you have other ideas about that. I'm curious. No, I mean, I'm just, uh, well, thematic maps are everywhere. And just if you see one sort of manifestation of that now is geographic information systems kind of taking some of these principles that have deeper roots in the 19th century, probably more than even many geographers or GIS specialists realize, Mm -hmm. but that they're just used so so much, and, and certainly students in our department are learning, as they are in any geography department, are, are learning um, about ways to kind of apply these principles, again, that have very deep roots, and apply them to contemporary issues. Uh, well, Susan, we're almost out of time, and I just wanted to ask you, you know, you've been doing this work on geography and mapping with your last book and then your current book, Mapping the Nation. So are you going to continue on with some of these themes in your in your next book? Um, you always find avid readers for your book in geography, um, not just historians, but geographers are always interested in uh, reading your work. So do you have a sense of what you're going to be doing in the future? Uh, I have a couple of things I'm interested in. I'm still interested in the 
amazing world of mapping during the Civil War. Now, with next year, some of those sesquicentennial anniversaries are going to begin to die down. Um, but that's been a really, really great learning experience for me, a, a whole area of mapping, topographic mapping primarily, mm-hmm. that I, I didn't know much about um, prior um, to, um, I guess, four or five years ago. Um, the, the girls' school maps that I mentioned to you are interesting to me only because – there are so many of them. It's made me think that there is a kind of um, graphic level of graphic literacy in the early 19th century that we might not be aware of. And I'm interested in what that saturated graphic and cartographic culture uh, might have meant to schoolgirls um, and boys as well. I found many of the maps drawn by boys in the early 19th century. And then I'm also interested in um, coming back to someone who you may know of, Richard Harrison. Um, the mid-20th century artist who became one of the most important cartographers for the public during World War II and reconfigured the way Americans thought about the world and geography with the advent of aviation. Mm -hmm. Um, His papers um, have now been cataloged, (laughs) (laughs) and I'm really interested in digging into those and going back to someone who I was lucky enough to interview before he died in the early 90s, Um, but to think more systematically about the kind of artistic revolution in cartography mm-hmm. that he wrought in the 1930s and 40s. So those are some of my ideas. I'm all over the place. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm eager to read more about them. And if they end up uh, um, in book form, we'll have to have you back on the podcast. <laughs> so, so Susan, I really enjoyed our conversation. And I want to thank you for coming on New Books in Geography. Thank you, Bob. <laughs>